Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Nahlman. And I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was now that I talk to Elliot regularly. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. Welcome to our uh, podcast on forgiveness and atonement. I'm Yossi, this is uh, Elliot, Dr. Malamed, Rabbi Yossi, and uh, we're talking pre-Yom Kippur about things that are troubling us and probably trouble everybody. We welcome your comments and feedback, of course. So how do you deal with, A, the notion that people have that we just forgive three times, etc., and B, we should talk about how you actually forgive and should you forgive and do you do you have to forgive? Number one, do you have to? Yassi, it always bothered me that people are regurgitating this. You know, you're supposed to ask somebody to forgive you three, three times. times. And if yeah. they don't, oh, it's on you now. Well, sorry, there are things that I can't forgive you for because I think there are things that are unforgivable. So what are you telling me? Like Judaism says like, oh, you have to, you have to. What if you're not ready? Does Judaism say you have to? So that's, I think, what people walk around thinking is that Judaism says you have to. And if you don't, you're the sinner now. I've had people say that to me, like, for years. I read, you know, Dr. Melman, I read that three times you have to ask for forgiveness. And if they don't, it's on them now. So I'm thinking to myself, really? Like, you sexually abused your daughter and uh, you asked three times and she refuses you and, like, now it's on her? Seriously? Yeah, that sounds awful. That, that sound really awful. Sound awful. I, sounds I, absurd. I, I cannot right? accept that that's... Well, first of all, I, I, I'm not sure what people think. I think people don't know what to think. I think it depends on who you are. I think there's a problem when you're trying to, <clears throat> trying to match law with human life. So law says to you, this is the structure for what we want. We want, there's a process. There's, you say it, you ask for forgiveness, and they're supposed to forgive you, and so on. But then it's up against human reality. Human reality is there's certain things that are so painful for a person that why should I forgive them? So I don't know that law can cover all the situations, right? I think that there's a timing to forgiveness for certain people. And I think that if you ask them to forgive people who they find unforgivable, you just re-traumatize them. Right. So there can't be any sense in that. Okay, so let's agree. Not everything needs forgiveness. Now, Can we agree? Here, I, I do agree with that. Let me ask you something. Your experience, right? Yeah. You, you've dealt with thousands People. of these, right? Yeah. What if the person isn't sorry? Am I supposed to forgive them? You know, you say you really hurt me, and they're like, oh, okay, I apologize. But you know they're just apologizing. When I was a kid, a friend of mine said that whenever his dad did something mean, he would come home at the end of the day. He wouldn't say, I'm sorry. He would never say, I'm sorry. What he would do is he'd bring a little thing, like a little gift, <laughs> uh, like, you know, a chachka. a chachka, a toy. And this would be like code for we're good now, right? But he would never say, I'm sorry. And my friend actually, this bothered him for decades as he grew up. He, he, he always wanted that, I'm sorry. I validate your feelings. You were right. I was mean. And he never got it, right? So what if you don't get that from somebody else? So Should you just forgive them? I think you just hit on the, the key starting point of forgiveness when you're not sorry. And that is validation. If we're looking at forgiveness as something that requires validation, the answer is a chachka is not going to do it. It has to be, like we say in Hebrew, with, a, with your full 
fullness of your of your expression, you have to acknowledge what you've done. You have to express your personal regret. You have to express the fact that you know you hurt somebody, etc. But that again goes back to what you said. That's not real life. In real life, people often say I'm sorry without truly comprehending what they've done or the magnitude of it. I know I I I'm working in the rabbinic world for 25 plus years. I had a funeral director come up to me that I've known for 20 years. And he said, finally, one day he said, you really hurt me. I said, how did I hurt you? He said, long time ago, you were flipping. I said, I was flipping. I said, I honestly, I don't recall. I never really felt that way. But you have to understand that if I understood what I had done, I would feel terrible as I do now. I feel even more terrible that I hurt you in all these years. And I said, the worst part of it for me is that you didn't feel you could come to me. And we've become good friends now. But that, that, that engagement on all those levels has allowed for a true forgiveness and him to accept it and me to feel that I'm forgiven. Before we get into the, the validation, there's also the question we should ask from the person who is asking forgiveness. What happens to them? What if the person that forgives them is not authentically forgiving them? So there's two there's two people in within the question of validation. So so there's actually another step, right? The first step, and that's what you were talking about with the funeral director, is that the person has to say, "I did something wrong." Right. And people have somehow this mythology that like what's Jewish is to be a martyr. Like somebody does something terrible to you, and you go, "Oh no, 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 that's fine, that's fine." No, sorry, the forgiveness scene is only going to work when somebody admits that they were hurt. So actually, the first step is to go and say, you know what, you really hurt me. Because that is the trigger to the apology, which is the trigger to the forgiveness. Without that, you're actually entering in mid-scene. You're, you're apologizing. Will you even know to apologize? Why do I say this? Because in your thing with the funeral director, you didn't actually ha- know. I didn't know that you had to apologize because no. you didn't know that you'd hurt him because no he idea. didn't say anything to you. Absolutely right. So actually, it's a law, right? You see, my actually codifies this: that the person has to say you hurt me, and then there's a chance for the other person to apologize, which then creates the opportunity for, for the forgiveness. Okay, okay so you you're need so, all three steps. You're saying that Jewish law, let's say my who codifies it, actually reverses the popular notion of forgiveness in which the person who is hurt has to initiate the forgiveness conversation. Unless, of course, you get lucky and the person is aware of what they've done and they come home and apologize, they come to you and apologize, etc. But if that doesn't happen, to really seek forgiveness starts with the person seeking recognition of the problem, the issue. Then the person, let's say, apologizes sincerely and then, of course, what kicks in is the three-part forgiveness structure where if you've done A and ask, B, they've done forgiveness, you then have an obligation to forgive. So the three parts of forgiveness may not actually be forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. It may be I ask, you respond, I forgive. Exactly. Okay. So which leads us back to the first step. This is the most interesting to me, one to me, which is why don't people tell other people you did something that hurt me? So part of it I always felt was that it enrages them to have to ask. Like, you don't know what you did to me? So they don't ask. They don't say, they don't, sorry, they don't say, 
you know what, that thing you did to me in February, it was really nasty and you really hurt me and I've been sitting on it for six months. They don't say that. Why don't they say that? Because in their brain, it's like, you don't know what you did to me in February? Like, are you so clueless that you don't understand what you do to other people? Well, I'm not gonna tell you. So of course, now it remains silent and subterranean because nobody's talking about it. So I think that's one reason people don't ask. And the other reason I think is because of, it's risky. Because if you go to somebody and you say, you really hurt me, and they're like, I did? No, I didn't. You're crazy. So now you're re-traumatized. They hurt you the first time, now they're hurting you a second time by not acknowledging the fact that they hurt you the first time. So that messes up the whole forgiveness scene because people are hesitant to tell other people that they were hurt by them, which then, of course, there's no chance for the apology because the person is obtuse and they don't know what they did, and now you don't have forgiveness. So this podcast is about atonement and forgiveness, and we're trying to get to the bottom of what makes forgiveness work? What makes it real? Who is responsible for it? What is the power inherent in forgiving? How do you go about seeking forgiveness? How do you go about granting forgiveness and so on? Of course, we welcome your comments and anything you'd like to tell us, perhaps even a, a personal story. Where we'd love to hear. We really want to understand how this works, not on the pages of Jewish law, but in real life and in everyday situations. Elliot, I want to share with you a, a personal engagement I had with forgiveness. And it came through the 12 Steps program that I attended when I was doing uh, not... Alcoholics Anonymous, but Overeaters Anonymous. Okay. And a lot of people don't realize that it, is, it, it, ha, it, it has its foundation in religious principles, but it offers you the connection to a higher power, whichever one you choose. And in my case, it was the higher power was the vision of myself as a successful, healthy human being. I didn't want to get into the God thing. It was too challenging. But consider this. Step four is... We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Okay, and you write it down. And then in step five, you have to admit to whatever your higher power is to yourself and to another human being, or almost a random human being, the nature of your wrongs. Okay. Step six, we were ready to get removed, to remove those, those defects. And step seven, we asked our higher power to remove them. But that's an interim step because the next thing is in step eight, you make a list of every person you've ever harmed. Whoa. And then you didn't make amends to them. You had to become willing okay. to make amends. Wow. And at step nine, you make direct amends to those people wherever possible, except, and here's where I want to talk, what I want to talk about, except when to do so would injure them or others. However, you need to make amends. So if you take these steps that we just referred to, four through nine, and it's worth looking them up and understanding how AA works and OA works, and it's really about reframing your own, your own internal persona. I've received phone calls from people who've gone through the program who just called me and apologize and say, Yossi, you might not remember, but when I blah, 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 I hurt you in such and such a way, and I had to do this. And I didn't do it fully. And they say a lot of people drop out at step four. The moment you have to start uh. concretizing your sins and then asking for forgiveness. It's not so difficult to find a random person and tell them your sins. It's much more difficult to tell your sins to the person you hurt. And for many good reasons. This is why we should really focus on the trauma. If it's true, and I think it is, that forgiveness often is initiated by the person who was hurt. 
that's one kind of re-traumatizing. But also the person who hurt risks re-traumatizing someone else. So now you bear the burden of not only did I hurt you, maybe I'm awakening, I'm, I'm awakening pain that I caused you, and now you're going to doubly resent me. And why would you forgive me? So there's a risk on every side in forgiveness. And I, I'm, I'm very inspired by this. I'm very inspired by the fact that in the High Holidays we read aloud a list of inglorious sins. We sing them. It's public. We all talk about these terrible things we may have done. I think it's important, but I really want your insight into the, the how you get validation when there's a huge risk of re-traumatizing. So can we just talk about the catch-22 that you just described? Yeah. Because what we're saying is that the, the real... Supposedly, the, the spiritual policy is that if you did something wrong, so you apologize to somebody. But what you just sort of um, alluded to in step nine of AA is that sometimes when you apologize to the other person, it's the worst thing you can do because it basically initiates a new round of pain for them. They kind of like try to block you out, try to forget you. Here you appear on the scene, you say, oh, you know, I feel really bad. You know, the thing I did to you five years ago, I want to, I want to raise it again and I want to apologize for it. And the other person's like, no. I don't want to hear from you. I don't, I don't even want to hear from your apology because the mere mention of the thing you did to me, even if you're apologizing for it, is going to make me feel terrible. So actually, you're really in a, a sticky situation now because the person needs to apologize in a sense because that's what they need to do. But the person on the other end of the apology has no interest in receiving it. So you've left them in kind of a box. And I think that this really gets to a core issue of forgiveness, which is timing the timing of forgiveness. Sometimes the thought is that the person should be forgiving, but what if their timing is not in sync with it? Like, I'm just not ready to do that. You ever heard of this person, Terry Jentz? Oh yeah, they wrote... Uh, She's this writer, she wrote, about, yeah. yeah. She wrote this book, Strange Piece of Paradise. Right. So she was in Oregon in 1977. She was traveling with her friend, I think she was like 15, and they were attacked. Um, they were doing this like cross-country bicycle trip and they were attacked and she, what she does is she goes in the early 90s, she returns to Oregon to the scene of the attack to sort of investigate it and kind of come to terms with her experience. So in the book, she describes how after the attack, she had years where she felt paralyzed because she said she defaulted, that's the word she used, she defaulted to forgiveness. And why did she default to forgiveness? Based on religious training. In other words, she'd grown up with this kind of religious training and the training told her, you know, you're supposed to forgive people. And she said it was an easy forgiveness and it was tremendously detrimental because it left her with this legacy of powerlessness. I think that's really interesting. I think it's really important what Jets is saying because we have this idea also Jewishly that it's this mitzvah to forgive somebody but what if the very process of forgiving the person leaves you feeling angry and you feeling powerless? Because you know what? I'm really not in the mood to forgive you. Not now or not yet. Or not ever. Or not ever. So Terry Jentz, T-E-R-R-I-J-E-N-T-Z. That's the book you're referring to. So Elliot, it becomes clear that the process of forgiveness is far more complex than I'm sorry, I forgive. And this is probably why we need to think about developing skills towards forgiveness. We invite your comments as always, and uh, we really, really wonder 
how do you go about your everyday life? Not in small forgiveness. Oh, you bumped my arm. Oh, that's okay. I'm sorry. I apologize. Real forgiveness. It is impossible, at least in my view and my experience as a rabbi for 25 years, that you should live your life meaningfully in any way without requiring or needing forgiveness. I think there's really two things that we have to think about in terms of forgiving and learning how to do it. One is that most of us think of forgiveness as kind of drama. Something happened once in a long while, it was bad, and we have to have this really dramatic operatic scene where we forgive the person and they apologize. I think it would actually be much better to think about forgiveness in a way more mundane fashion, which is, this is not an occasional thing, this is a life skill. It's a life skill that you use every day because every day people hurt each other. And the truth is, who hurts each other the most? The people who know each other the best. People who love each other, people in families, friendships, relationships. So it's not an occasional thing. You're always, you know, irking somebody else or even insulting them, saying something nasty or sarcastic or being silent at the wrong time, whatever it is. You need to be able to repair it. You need that reparative force, what, what Robert Karen calls the reparative force of forgiveness. And you need it to work almost constantly. So we need to learn how to do that. So the first thing to think about is, is it's a skill set, not just um, a piece of theater. I think the other thing to remember is that I suspect that most of us don't want I'm sorry as just words. What we want more than anything else, and I think you alluded to it before, Yassi, is we want validation. Right. What does validation mean? It means that when you're hurt by somebody else, you have a perspective on what happened. Now, <clears throat> when they apologize, what you really want for them is to say to you, you know what, your perspective is right. In other words, I did do that thing. You're not crazy. I really did make a snide comment. I really did joke about you in public. So you're not dreaming it. It's not a hallucination. I did it. I was wrong. And I apologize. Because what you're getting there is you're getting a validation. When somebody says to another person, you hurt me, that's a very lonely place. It's a like, risky place. <clears throat> it's a it's risky, a, lonely You're place. vulnerable beyond, beyond right. compare. You're out there on the ridge. Right. You're out there on that ledge. And if they say to you, what are you talking about? They've just pushed you off the ledge. Or you deserved it. Right. Or it was your fault. Or you're too or sensitive. You always, you always say things yeah, like that. Yeah, you always that. say stuff. You're too sensitive. Right? So yeah. um, I think that what we want is for the person to say, come back in from the cold. You're absolutely right. I did do that thing. And now you feel less lonely. You feel like your perspective is validated. On a national level, I think one of the more interesting examples of this in contemporary times was the thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, where people who were perpetrators had to get up and they had to say, yeah, I did that. I did horrible things. Now, it was controversial because there was a kind of deal that if you got up and said it, you would, you would sort of not get punished in a certain way. But the idea was there to create a national validation that I did this thing. And in some ways, that commission helped to avert massive bloodshed in South Africa, when Mandela and the Congress, the uh, African National Congress went into power, uh, as a put, you know, instead of these like revenge killings on whites, it helped to create a certain kind of atmosphere where feelings would get validated. It wasn't a miracle cure, but so, I, I so get you're the referring idea. to to the idea, you're, the concept that there's it is possible to create a formula around 
atonement and forgiveness that allows the freedom to express your your sin in a way that the sinner is safe to speak. And then there's uh, a methodology by which the one who was hurt can get some validation because at least their narrative is validated. But let's talk about that in, in everyday life. So if you and I have a, an ongoing relationship, friendship, and we're always going to bump into each other in some way or another, or in a marriage or whatever kind of intimate closeness you have in life with people. So what does it sound like if you're giving someone advice, uh, uh, like sort of a stock phrase methodology by which you can repeat the empathy that is required for forgiveness. Now, I would imagine it's something like if someone says to you, you hurt me, which means they've, they're courageous and what they're seeking is validation, which is what we said. And my response to that should be, and this is what I would say is the fact that you've told me that demands that I search my soul to understand how I hurt you. And if I don't understand it, I'm still going to ask you to forgive me and I'll work on it. But I accept that if you were hurt that way, that's real. So I think that's that's a starting step. And you, you can certainly define what to do by what not to do. And one of my favorite passages... All right, what do you not liturgy, do? Tell so me. first day of Rosh Hashanah, you open up and you read the Haftarah. And the Haftarah is about a man named Elkanah who has two wives, Hannah and Penina. And Hannah is infertile. And this makes her really bitter, and her rival Penina has children and taunts her, and it's a, it's a really painful situation. Anybody who's experienced infertility can relate to it. And so Penina, Hannah is, is, she's bereft, she's crying. Elkanah, there's a lot of things he could say. He could say, I feel so badly, I'm so sorry, what can I do for you? But the real secret of it is, is that he is intimidated by his wife's pain. You know the kind of people who like can't stand the fact that the person they're with is in pain because they treat it as a judgment on themselves? Right. <clears throat> like, oh, if you're feeling bad, that must be a judgment that I'm not a good partner uh, for you. It's quite narcissistic. You know? Yeah, it's incredibly narcissistic. Yeah. So what does he say to her? Classic. He says to her, Hannah, like, why aren't you eating? Why are you crying? Am I, not, am I not better to you than 10 sons? Seriously? That's what you say to somebody in pain? You flip it over and make it about yourself? Like, am I not better to you than 10 sons? So what he's actually doing is saying, kind of validate me. Instead of validating her, he says, validate me, validate my You don't pain. need a child. You yeah. need me, and you need to make me feel good about you not having a child. Exactly. You know, you need to make me feel okay about this. How did it become about him? Right? So we certainly learn from that passage what not to do, how not to validate, how not to in engage in a forgiveness scene because he messes it up badly. Right. Well, and, and I don't know that you could show the direct correlation because we're, we're not we're not told this story. But when the child is weaned three years old, approximately, or whatever age, she picks him up, dedicates him to the temple and yeah. removes him from the sphere of his seemingly horrible father. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who, who want to actually read that that passage, that's the first book of Samuel, chapter 1 through 2, verse 10. It's, it's worth reading, and it speaks to this deep narcissism. It also speaks to 
her rival, Panina, who mocked her. And that was tolerated as well. And then it all emanates from a very interesting moment in which they're supposed to be celebrating with food and be happy. And she says, I can't be happy. I'm miserable. And that's where this conversation comes. How could you possibly be miserable? You've got me. It's interesting. And if you think about relationships, so it's almost like for Elkanah, she's like spoiling the party. Like people have this image of the life they're living, like everybody's supposed to be happy. And if they're not happy, that's such a drag. It's such a drag that you're not happy because it makes me feel like things aren't going as well as I want them to be. Instead of actually dealing with the reality that people have stuff and you've got to actually listen to the stuff, empathize with the stuff. His problem is that she's not saying to him, fix it. She's not. She knows he can't fix it. She's not saying to him, I'm childless, fix it. She's just saying, leave me alone, let me feel. Yeah, she's just saying, like, I feel bad, okay? That's how it is. He doesn't have to say, I'm gonna make it better. All he has to do is listen, right? It's really, the story's not just about that, it's about all these situations where people are in pain and other people can't handle their pain because they feel anxious about, so how do I fix this? you, You don't have to fix it. You just have to be there with them. So you have to verbalize to the person who has just shared with you that they're in pain. A, I can't tell you how to feel, and I accept the way you feel. Um, I am not here to make you unfeel. All I'm here to do is accept your feelings, and let. And we can talk about what I can do, or if you just need to be where you are. But what I can say is if I cause that pain, I own it. You can give it back to me. I I love the high holidays in some ways. I don't like them in others. It's a challenging thing. It's something we could talk about. And of course, I invite the listeners' comments to tell me how they feel about the high holidays in general and what they love, what they don't. One of the most interesting traditions we have is Tashlich, the idea that we cast away our sins. And the text that it's a quote from Ezekiel, 1831, Essentially, Ezekiel saying, if you cast away from yourselves all your transgressions, you can then create within yourself a new heart and a new spirit. You have to get rid of stuff to change yourself. You have to get rid of it. And sometimes it means throwing it back at the person that gave it to you. I didn't ask you for this. It's yours. But if you clean out your space, whether by forgiving or by giving back, you then start to be able to have a new heart and a new spirit. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's like Holmes and Watson. <clears throat> Holmes says to Watson, Watson, your mind's like an attic. If it's filled with junk, there's no space for new ideas. You have to get rid of the junk in the attic. Got to get rid of it. I'm uh, Yossi at livingjewishly.org. And I'm Elliot at livingjewishly.org. And we want to hear from you. Why didn't you use your Hebrew name? My Hebrew name is Baruch. Okay. I understand now. Elliot, we're done. I'm sorry for screaming at you for the last half hour, but it was... I learned something. That's okay. I don't mind you screaming at Did you learn anything? I learned that you scream at me a lot. (laughs) I want to thank everyone who listened. Please send us your feedback at hello at livingjewishly.org. We would absolutely love to hear from you. 